Well, this morning, um, we're going to be doing something uh, a little bit different. And uh, that is that as we look into God's Word, normally we celebrate communion at the end uh, of our service. We're actually going to be celebrating communion in the middle of the message this week. And so I just wanted to give you a heads up about that at the very beginning, um, that once we celebrate communion, it's not, the, uh, it's not over yet. Uh, we're going to come back and have a little bit more um, of the message following that. So this morning we're looking at John chapter 19. And this is the chapter where Jesus has come to the end of his life and he's about to be crucified. And I can just imagine the disciples standing there from afar saying, it wasn't supposed to end like this. It wasn't supposed to end like this. I mean, as they're standing there watching their teacher, their friend, the person they had spent the last three years of the life, their lives with, the, the person they had left their jobs for, the one they thought was the Messiah. And they stand afar watching, not as he is crowned king, but as he dies an agonizing death on a Roman cross, betrayed, naked, shamed. So the death of Jesus on the cross, the, the greatest tragedy, the most cataclysmic event in all of history, the, the deepest injustice, our greatest shame, was this really how the story was supposed to end? I mean, surely this, surely this couldn't have been the plan, right? I mean, what, what happened what are we to think about this moment? Uh, was it a mistake? Was it a failure? Uh, Reza Aslan, who is a professor of creative writing, and, and actually he's a former evangelical Christian who converted to Islam, um, he was written a book called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and it's kind of topped the bestseller list lately. And he says yes to this question, that it, that it was a failure. Recently, he was asked in, a, in an interview, uh, was Jesus a failed Messiah? And this is how he replied. He said, well, Jesus did not reestablish the kingdom of David, so he failed. But after his death, his followers redefined the meaning of Messiah. Now, Reza Aslan, who is deeply skeptical of the authenticity and reliability of the Gospels, uh, despite the outstanding work of scholars like Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, or N.T. Wright and Jesus and the Victory of God, um, who are actually, frankly, more qualified probably to comment on these things than he is. Um, but despite that, he's deeply skeptical, as many are, of the, of the testimony of the Gospels. And he takes the view that, that so many do, that the crucifixion was basically an accident, that it was a failure. Um, those who would take this view would say that at a certain point, yes, maybe Jesus' death was an inevitability, but it certainly wasn't an intentionality. It became an inevitability, but it wasn't an intentionality. But what if the crucifixion wasn't an accident? What if it was all part of the plan from the beginning? What if the worst of the worst days in human history wasn't an accident at all, but was part of a plan. And this morning, as we look at John chapter 19, we're going to see that the worst day required the best planning. That the worst day required the best planning. If you're taking notes this morning, maybe jot that down, that the worst day required the best planning. 
Now, I, like I said, this morning our time's going to look a little bit different than normal. First, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' death. And then we're going to pause in the middle of the sermon, and we're actually going to celebrate the meal that proclaims his death. And then we're going to come back for just a few more minutes and reflect on the meaning of Jesus' death. So the story of his death, then the meal that celebrates and proclaims his death, and then the meaning of his death. So as we look at the story of his death, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 19. It's actually, uh, the passage is found on page 905 of the Pew Bible, so if you grab one of those out of the rack, um, you're welcome to turn there, page 905. Also, if you're newer here and you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that Pew Bible home with you if your family doesn't have one. Um, Page 905. As we look at this passage, we will see three things. Um, The hour had to come, that the scriptures had to be fulfilled, and that the plan had to be finished. So as we look at John 19, the the hour had to come, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, and the plan had to be finished. So first the hour had to come. John begins writing, if you look at verse 14 of, of chapter 19, this is what John writes. He says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And this is Pilate. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side, Jesus in between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it above the cross. Now Jesus had been arrested and betrayed the night before. Uh, He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, a man he had spent three years with, one of the people who was his closest followers. And after being beaten and questioned and mocked and insulted, the moment, the hour had come. Did did you catch that in, in verse 14 where John said it was about the sixth hour? If you were with us last week when we looked at John chapter 2, we talked about, you may remember, the importance of the word hour in the gospel of John. And, and the word hour in God, John's gospel always refers to the hour of Jesus' death. And so last week when we looked at John chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana and he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. He's saying the hour of my death has not yet arrived. And this theme just continues on through the gospel of John so that in John chapter 7 verse 30, John writes, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The same thing in John chapter 8, verse 20. uh, John writes, These words he spoke in the treasury and he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But then when you get to John chapter 12, a shift happens. And Jesus now says for the first time that his hour has come. In John 12, 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then several verses later in in John chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so he says, for this purpose, this is not an accident. 
Jesus isn't looking forward to this. He wishes that he could be saved from it. But he makes it clear that the purpose for which he came is this hour. It's not an accident. The hour had to come. John 13, 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come from him to depart out of this world. And then in John 17, John 17 is the chapter right before Jesus is arrested. Jesus prays to his father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The hour had to come. Jesus' whole life had looked forward to his hour to this hour, the hour of his death. This was not an accident. See, the worst day required the best planning. The hour had to come. But second, not only did the hour have to come, but also the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And if you look a little further down in John chapter 19 to verse 23, we find this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. You see, far from being an accident, far from being a failure or a mistake, everything that happened to Jesus down to the soldiers casting lots for his clothes was part of a plan, even down to the smallest details. And again, the theme of Jesus fulfilling the scriptures is a theme that we see all the way through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12, the people's unbelief is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6. In John chapters 13 and 17, Jesus' betrayal is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. In John chapter 15, verse 25, hatred of Jesus was a fulfillment of of Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. In John 18, 32, Jesus' execution by crucifixion is seen as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21, 23. In fact, John writes there, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. And here in John 19.24, the casting of lots for Jesus' garment was the fulfillment of Psalm 22.18 where the psalmist writes of the Messiah, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, it all happened according to plan. Everything was on purpose. And it wasn't just the Father's plan, as though the Father had sort of forced Jesus to to do this and Jesus was unwilling. This was Jesus' plan. And Jesus makes that very clear in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, that he and he alone is the one who is responsible for his death. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. And then Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. The hour had come. 
the scriptures had to be fulfilled because Jesus had enacted a plan to lay down his life freely. And then third and finally, the plan had to be finished. Look at John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, the legs being broken would hasten death, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once out came blood and water. And he who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. Did you notice there's several more times just in these next few verses where the scripture is fulfilled? In light of our message last week, it's ironic that Jesus, who just in John chapter 2 turned hundreds of gallons of water into wine, is now parched of thirst and is given just a little bit of sour wine. Also, the fact that Jesus body is not broken in the sense of his bones are not broken and the fact that his side is his pierced is fulfills two more scriptures and all of this was according to plan the plan had to be finished peter in acts chapter 2 declares that jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god see the plan had to be finished and now it is when the plan was finished jesus declared once and for all, it is finished. And with these words, he gives up his spirit. Notice it just, it's not taken away from him. Jesus says he gives up his spirit and he dies. And, and as N.T. Wright and so many others have, have pointed out that these words, it is accomplished, it is complete, it is finished. They echo Genesis when God finished his work and then rested on the sixth day. Now Jesus, the Son of God, is dead. Now that we have seen the story of Jesus' death, we now celebrate the meal that proclaims his death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had broke it, he gave thanks. And when he had broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Do this. Drink this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, the new covenant had been, had been promised, had been talked about since the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And now with the completion of Christ's death, the new covenant has finally come. It has finally been set into motion. The new covenant in which sin is completely and finally forgiven. The new covenant which will make possible a new creation has been inaugurated. So this morning as you come to the communion table... You proclaim Jesus' death to the world, and you claim Jesus' death for yourself. And you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your trust in him, then you are welcome at his table. And I know that we have uh, more children in our service today than normal. And uh, children, you're uh, just up to your parents if they feel that you're ready. Um, It's up to your discretion, parents, to, to allow them to receive communion. Um, And of course, if you'd rather remain seated during this time and use this as a time to reflect and pray, you're welcome to do that. Um, When you come, gather in groups of four or five and then take the bread and dip it in the cup and then partake together as a group. And there's four communion stations around uh, the room. There's two here in the front and there's also two in the back. And the one in this um, part of the back has gluten-free communion elements added uh, for those who need that. Um, And I know that it can be a little congested here in our building. Uh, with the pews being so narrow, but if you have to bump into one another a little bit, getting in and out, that's all right. But it works best if you exit through the side aisles and then return to the center. And take your time during this moment. Don't feel rushed. And remember that we're going to come back after this in just a moment and reflect a little bit on what does Jesus' death mean. But now when you're ready, come to the Lord's table and proclaim his death to the world. So we've looked at the story of Jesus' death, and we've celebrated the meal that proclaims his death, but what does this all mean, right? What, how does this dying on a cross, what, what does it all mean? How does this make a difference in my life, in the world, in your life? Well, in the span of just a few minutes or even a few messages, we couldn't really begin to grasp all that Christ's death means. In fact, really the rest of the New Testament, in fact, in one way or another, the entire Bible is a reflection on what Christ's death means. But this morning, I want to make three brief observations about what Christ's death means for us. First, Christ's death means that God's love never fails First, Christ's death means that God's love never fails. There was no length to which God was not willing to go to rescue and to restore those of us, you and I, who he loves. And Jesus says in John 15, 13, and I just imagine Judas sitting there with him at the table in the upper room. Jesus is about to be betrayed, and Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, and that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, every time you see a cross, you should think, Jesus loved me so much that he laid down his life for me. 
But the reality is, is that, that we so quickly forget and doubt. We begin to doubt God's love and his goodness for us, right? The first sin in the garden and, and every sin afterwards in some way or another is rooted in a doubt in God's love and a doubt in his God's goodness. And, and often our doubt in God's goodness and in his love is shaken when we face pain and suffering, right? When we encounter difficulty, these are the moments when we begin to say, God, I, I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm doing the best that I can to follow the design that you've laid out in your word. And, and why am I suffering like this? Why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Where are you? But we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. Uh, at least not as Christians. Because you see, Jesus didn't just live a, a good life. He lived a perfect life. Uh, Jesus didn't just do his best to follow God's will. He obeyed God's will perfectly. And he was led into the deepest and darkest suffering of a brutal death on the cross, betrayed by his closest friends. You see, Christianity isn't a pathway to a life free of suffering, but the message of the cross is that whatever the cause of the suffering might be in your life, that what, the, what your suffering can't mean is that God doesn't love you. Let me say that again. Christianity isn't a pathway to a suffering-free life, but the message of the cross is that whatever the cause of the suffering in your life may be, what that suffering can't mean is that God doesn't love you. The cross stands and says whatever suffering you're facing, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He didn't spare his own son for you. He loves you so much. On the cross, the question of God's love has forever been answered. And, and here's the great news of the cross is that the love that God has for you isn't based on you. It's not based on what you have done or, or, or haven't done. The message of the cross is that God's love for you is based on him. One of my favorite pastors, uh, Tulian Tajidovin, writes it in this way. I love the way he puts this. He says, society demands two-way love. He says, everything's conditional. If you achieve, only then will you receive meaning, security, respect, love, and so on. But grace is one-way love. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love that comes at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is love when you are unlovable. So Christ's death means that God's love never fails. Second, Christ's death means that God's salvation never falls short. On the cross, we see both the beauty of love, but also the horror of sin. Jesus' death on the cross is the way that God could be just and yet justify sinners. Jesus' death on the cross paid the debt created by sin, the debt that, that you and I owed. But when Jesus on the cross declared, it is finished, the debt was paid in full, and the record of wrongs that stood against you and I was canceled finally and forever. You see, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You are free. You are free of guilt and shame. And the title sinner is no longer an intolerable accusation against you. Because as Martin Luther, the great reformer, says, when Satan tells me that I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably because Christ died for sinners. I love that. When Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. 
But, but so often, even if we can get this through our heads uh, we, and we think of these things, uh, they often don't go deep down into our hearts. And, and at a heart level, we still operate as, as though we need to somehow earn God's favor, as though God is just waiting for us to trip up and, and condemn us and to come down on us. But those are lies. If you are in Christ, the work is finished. So rest in his work. Rest in the work of the cross. The hymn writer John Proctor penned these words in his hymn titled, It Is Finished. I love this. He says, When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearken to his cry, till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, Stand in him alone, gloriously complete. Stand in him alone, gloriously complete. And third and finally, God's plan never goes wrong. Christ's death means that God's plan never goes wrong. You see, God has planned everything for our good. There are no mistakes. God never makes mistakes. The crucifixion was not an unplanned accident of a a failed Messiah. No, the crucifixion was Jesus, of Jesus, was the, was the glorious plan of God from before time to forgive your and my rebellion, to heal our sickness, to release us from our slavery, to restore our worship to its only proper object. You see, the bad news is that the cross was the worst day in human history when Jesus, the very Son of God, God himself in some way, died But the good news is that there is no worse day than Good Friday because now Jesus has risen, is alive, never to die again. So no matter how bad of a day you have, it can't get worse than Good Friday. It can't be worse than the day that Jesus was dead. Every bad day that you have, there is hope because Jesus has died and risen again. And if you're in Christ, the worst suffering that you can experience will only work together for the good of you becoming more like Christ. If you're in Christ, the worst suffering that you can experience will only in the end work to make you more like Jesus. So trust his plan. So trust his plan. I wrote in my journal this week as I was reading John chapter 19. I just, sometimes I write down what I'm, what I'm thinking about and as I read this text. And I just wrote one sentence. I just said, I don't like the crucifixion. I don't like reading these chapters of the Bible. I mean, they're, it's, they're dark. And yet, I have come to love the crucifixion, to rejoice in it as my only hope of rescue, to glory in it as the wisdom of God that is wiser than the wisdom of men. The worst day required the best planning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We are so thankful that you have given us the cross and that you have forgiven us of all our sins so that now when Satan does tempt us to despair, when he says you are a sinner, we can rejoice and say that's good news because Jesus died for sinners like me. 
Father, I pray that the gospel would go deep, not just into our hearts, Father, but that it would go deep down, or not just into our heads, but deep down into our hearts, that we would know at an operational level of of our hearts, our, our passion, our affection, that we are so deeply loved that we don't have to change in order to be loved, but that your love then changes us into the kind of person that you have called us to be. I pray that you would banish fear of condemnation for those who are in Christ today. And that we would rejoice in the freedom that we have in Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, today, as we conclude our time together, I want to mark a special anniversary. Uh, Jeremiah mentioned we're going to be having a concert on November 8th to kind of celebrate the one year. But today is actually the day, uh, the one year of our grand opening today. So yeah, let's which is really exciting. Um, it was one year ago today that we celebrated the grand opening. And just to raise a hand, so how many of you were there on that, that day, that grand opening service day? See, I love this. Look at how many of you have come since then. This is such good news. You know, I gave an, a little bit of an update at the congregational meeting last Sunday, and you know, we've, we've doubled in size since that first uh, Sunday, which is just exciting. And uh, I want to just show a couple of pictures just to kind of remind us, uh, those of us who were there that day, where we were then, and, and for those of you who have come, you know, kind of where we've come since then, a little bit of our story. So I've got a couple of slides. This was actually a slide from the very first day that we were in this building. It was before the construction began. It was back in April. And a few of us just met, said, if you're interested in seeing the building, um, come and, and be there uh, with us. And so you can see the, the stage hadn't been redone yet. We hadn't done anything yet to the building. Um, and then we had a, a send-off moment at Leewood later on that day. I know many of you were there, um, not that day, but later on that summer, where we were kind of commissioned from our Leewood campus to come and go and start this new campus of Christ community here. Um, then later we uh, had a prayer gathering. Some of you will remember we had that prayer gathering. We were going to do a preview service that Sunday, um, but the basement flooded. And so we ended up having a prayer gathering outside uh, instead that day. Um, so some of us gathered to pray and uh, and then finally that brought us then to the day of September 30th of, of last year was our, was our grand opening. And so um, it's just been fantastic to be here. I want to just thank each one of you for inviting your friends and neighbors to celebrate uh, with us that day. And then, you know, and continuing to invite them to be a part of what uh, God is doing here at the Brookside uh, campus. Um, we've continued to deepen our relationships with our neighbors and to serve our community. And um, I want to take a moment, and I think actually uh, Claire is probably downstairs serving with our children, but I want to thank Claire, our associate pastor, and John Brewer, uh, our worship pastor. Let's just give them a hand for all the incredible work that they have done. Last uh, July, John and Claire and I met, and we didn't really know each other. I mean, we were just coming together for really the first time, and God has really knit us together as a team, and I'm so thankful that I get to serve alongside of them. I also want to thank, and I don't know if she's here today or not, but Jesse Brooks, uh, who is a volunteer children's ministry leader, has done a phenomenal job. If ever you see Jesse, just tell her thank you. I mean, she serves our children um, so selflessly as a volunteer and has built our children's ministry from the ground up and has done a phenomenal job. And, and last of all, I want to thank you uh, for your incredible generosity, for your service. You have given of yourselves, your time, your energy, your talent, your relationships. And God is pleased by your service. He truly is. Yeah, we can clap for that. <laughs> um, I'm so blessed to be your pastor. Not all pastors get to brag about their congregation or, or get to be so blessed to have a congregation like you. And when I go and get to be with other pastors, I'm so, I always 
brag about you, and I'm so thankful that I get to be your pastor. So um, thank you for that. Yeah. It's truly a gift to serve here with you. And, and above all else, though, we want to give thanks to God uh, for whom and through whom we exist as a congregation.